Welcome to SelfDiscoveryRadio.com. With over 1,400 shows, we have the answers for you. Enjoy your listening on SelfDiscoveryRadio.com. Horatio Mouse. The day was hot, almost too hot. Even the birds were too lazy to fly. Down in the docks, men were loading up a ship for the captain to catch the evening tide. The men worked slowly in the baking heat. Horatio lay back in the cool shade of a barrel and watched the men at work. He'd been watching this particular ship for three days and had seen the men unload such wonderful cargo, spices, tobacco and huge sacks of ripe corn and barley, his very favourite food. He sniffed the air. The smells of the spices made him daydream about the land that they had come from, a land Horatio felt strangely drawn to, as if it was sending out a message to him. Often Horatio dreamt about going to this place. Somehow he felt that he was destined to journey there and that big things awaited him. What sort of big things he did not know, but he felt sure that it was his fate to live in this faraway country. Horatio, I must tell you, was a mouse, but not just an ordinary mouse. Horatio was an extraordinary mouse. You see, Horatio could speak and understand the human language. It was this fact that gave Horatio the conviction that he was fated to be great. How? He did not know, but great all the same, one day. The sun licked around Horatio's face and made him close his eyes. It was exhausting watching those men work so hard. He fell fast asleep. Suddenly Horatio was wide awake. The bell had sounded for lunch. Lunch meant crumbs for Horatio, or at least it would mean lunch if any of the sailors were tempted to come and sit and eat their sandwiches on the waterfront. Anxiously Horatio watched as two were coming his way. Horatio washed his whiskers, straightened his jacket and waited. The sailors wandered over near to where Horatio sat and settled themselves down on some large upturned baked bean tins. Soon they were eating away and talking happily in the sun. Horatio crept nearer. He hid under some grass and waited. His mouth watered. Cheese, lovely. All he had to do was to be patient. He was just about to doze off again when he heard one of the men say something about the ship alongside them. Yeah, mate, I know this place well. Went there once. Deep and dark it is. They do say that the jungle is haunted. I heard tell about a race of golden monkeys. Lost race or something. Been hunted for years. There's talk about a lost king too. Imagine that. Yes, this here particular country is very strange. Won't go again, not if you paid me. Funny country it is. On and on he talked. But Horatio didn't listen any more. He lay back under the clump of grass and daydreamed. He did not hear the lunchtime bell ring again for the men to return to work, and he forgot to sniff for crumbs. All afternoon he lay there, dreaming. Later, when the sun was beginning to lower over the horizon, the ship was readying to sail. Its siren sounded. Horatio awoke with a start. With a sudden realisation, Horatio now knew why he could speak the human language. He knew why fate had picked him out. He, yes, he and he alone, was the chosen one. He was destined to be this king. 
He was so excited at his idea that he hadn't realised that the ship was about to leave. Horatio shouted at the top of his voice, Don't go! I'm coming! Don't go! So quickly gathering up all the crumbs left by the two men, he put them in his big red handkerchief and ran across the wharf to the ship. Whilst everyone was busy and looking the other way, Horatio crept into a sack of grain. With a swoosh, he was suddenly lifted into the air. Gulping with fright, Horatio found himself being lowered into a dark cavern. It was the hold. He jumped out of the grain sack just before it landed and hid behind some boxes of fruit. Up above him, he heard voices calling out that all was ready to lower the hatches and Horatio found himself shut in for the journey. It was a bit dark, but a chink of sunlight came through the top and helped him see. Hungry now, he found grain spilt from a torn sack and collected water that trickled down a pipe that leaked into a tin left behind by some seaman. Life was good for Horatio. He settled down to enjoy the journey and to dream of the kingdom waiting there for him at the end of the voyage. The weeks went by, and although Horatio was fairly happy, it is to be confessed that he did have a twinge or two of regret, also, alas, a twinge or two of seasickness. Our hero lay on his comfortable bed of sacks and groaned a lot as the sea heaved beneath him and wondered whether he'd made a mistake. He was impatient to get to the new land. He wanted to see what his new kingdom looked like. Finally, the ship arrived at its destination and it was decidedly warmer in the hold. The hatches were opened and men swarmed into them to start the unloading. Horatio gathered together his bits and pieces and tied them up in his big red handkerchief, tidied his hair and brushed down his jacket. Then, pushing his shoulders back with determination, he climbed out of the hold. The men were rushing hither and thither, carrying crates up out of the hold and putting them on the deck, ready to be hoisted by cranes and swung over the side onto the dockside. Horatio was sunning himself out of sight of the men, when it struck him that he could not understand one word these sailors and dockers were saying. He was surprised. It had not occurred to him that there was any other language than English. He was pondering what to do when a cry went up, and here Horatio's heart gave a lurch. He did not know the language, but he knew what the men were calling. It was, Mice! Mice! He was clever enough to know that only mice produced that tone of voice in men, and anyway, he decided that he would not bother to find out if he was right or wrong, but that he would get off the ship as quickly as he could. Horatio watched the gangplank, and as soon as he saw that it was clear of men, he raced down it and kept running until he was many miles inland. In fact, he ran for about four hours, and by then it was nightfall. He saw that he was in the jungle, so he found a broken tree, curled up in a hole and fell fast asleep. His last thought before closing his eyes was, I must oh, explore. About a mile from where Horatio had slept was a small village. It was only a handful of huts, but lots of children and dogs played happily together in the sun. Horatio lay in the shade all day and listened to the children talk, but at night he crept out and gathered food that had been dropped by the children. He crept nearer the huts to listen to the grown-ups talk. You see, Horatio was determined to learn this new human language, and learn it he did. I told you he was a very unusual mouse. 
He learned also about the jungle and how to keep alive in this dangerous place. When he'd learned all he needed, he gathered up as much food as he could carry in his big red handkerchief, found a stick and tied the handkerchief on the end of it and started forth to claim his kingdom. Days went by until Horatio felt he had come as far into the jungle for his plan to work. So, selecting a broken log to sit on, he sunned himself and waited for his subjects to come. First, a timid buck came by. She jumped in fright at the sight of Horatio, but when he explained about being the new king, she just sighed and said, "'Oh, dear, what does it matter? I still get all the worry in the jungle, and you don't look as if you could save me from anyone at all. Oh, dear, dear, dear!' With that, she ambled away. "'What a spineless thing she is,' thought Horatio. "'Doesn't she know that I can speak the human language?' Well. She is of no consequence. A shadow loomed over Horatio. He blinked. Standing over him was a huge giraffe. Her eyelashes almost swept him off the log as she bent down to look at him. Horatio told her about being king and speaking the human language, but she looked disdainfully at him and sniffed. Then, gazing down at him with scorn, she spoke. Humans are low people, almost as low as... As, here she paused, as mice. Then she sniffed again and went away, leaving Horatio with an open mouth. Horatio was feeling a bit downhearted about the lack of interest in his offer to be king. So, as it was hot and the log was very, very comfortable, he fell asleep again. But not for long. He was awakened by such a shaking. Thump, thump, thump. His log bounced up and down. Horatio clung on fast to a twig and tried to remember whether earthquakes were very frequent in the jungle. He held on with all his might. Suddenly all was still. Horatio peeped out from under a bit of bark. There he saw a whole herd of elephants. Well, if not a whole herd, at least four or five. Horatio brushed himself down, cleared his throat, then, standing on the highest bit of the log, he put on his best kingly manner and said, <clears throat> My people. <clears throat> he wasn't prepared for the reaction that followed. The nearest elephant gave a squeak and said to her friend, I knew I didn't feel well today. I hear voices, dreadful voices. Oh dear, I feel faint. She waved her trunk in the air and turned quite pale. Her friends clucked in sympathy. Horatio cleared his throat once again and started his speech. My subjects, I want to tell you that I shall be a very good king. I shall be fair. I shall be kind, but strict. I shall be wise, but open to suggestions. I shall love my people, and... He got no further. Another elephant started shrieking. I can hear voices too. Something has happened to us. We're being bewitched. She waved her trunk in the air too, and also turned to goggle. The first elephant said, "'We must keep calm. We must try and act with dignity.' "'Eek! I can hear it still. It's horrible!' another elephant groaned. Horatio was furious. He danced up and down on the log and called out to them. "'Here I am!' shrieked Horatio. "'Here, you idiots! On the log! "'Listen, you stupid elephants. I'm your new king. Your new king, here on the log. "'Look, you lumps of!' He got no further, for suddenly one of the elephants saw him, jumped about a yard in the air, gave a piercing scream, and then rushed off. 
The others didn't wait to find out what she had seen. They took to their heels and followed her. They did not stop till they were at least fifty miles away, where they lay panting and telling each other about the monster they had seen. Such terror! Such horror! And what was that voice saying? Something about being king? Oh dear! They had had a narrow escape. Horatio was very cross. These animals did not deserve him. They did not deserve such a good king as himself. In fact, it was only his duty that made him stay on and try again. But as the day went by, he was more and more disappointed. Not one single animal was interested, except the snake. But he'd looked at Horatio with very greedy eyes. So greedy, in fact, that Horatio thought it better to disappear down a deep hole in the log until the snake grew tired of waiting and went away. After he had gone, Horatio thought that it was very wrong of a future subject to look at his king that way. Horatio was about to give up when he heard a chuckle near him. He peered around and saw a hyena sitting there laughing his head off. When Horatio inquired whether he could share the joke, the hyena rolled onto the ground, held his sides with laughter, and between laughs he said, <laughs> So you're going to be the new king! Ha 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 ho ho ho! Horatio was annoyed. Yes, I am, he said. The hyena laughed even louder. Horatio was even crosser. What's so funny about that, he asked. The hyena rolled around and in between laughs he said, ha, Have you told the King Lion yet? King Lion? Why, no. Ha, this is going to be funny, said the hyena. Oh my, <laughs> I can't wait to tell him. So, laughing louder than ever, he ran off into the jungle. Horatio sat on the log and thought that the animals in the jungle were ungrateful. They don't deserve me, he thought. They only want... Horatio quailed. From the jungle came a mighty roar. Turning quite white with fear, Horatio tried to make himself invisible. Then, out of the jungle, came the mighty lion. Where is he? Where is this upstart that thinks he can be king? Where is this cheeky mouse who dares to try and take my throne from me? Come out! Come out! Come here at once. With knees knocking and teeth chattering, Horatio crawled out of his hole. With as much bravery as he could muster, he stood on the highest part of the log, and with an even squeakier voice than usual, he said, You mean me? Yes, you, roared the lion. Then he stopped roaring and came to Horatio, looking at him very intently. He said in a very sarcastic voice, I hear that you fancy yourself as king. Now tell me why you should feel that you are qualified for that post. Tell me that, eh? Horatio was relieved that the king was going to be so kind and reasonable. He stood straighter and taller. Then with confidence he began, It's like this, your, uh, uh, lionship. I can speak the language of men, the human language. The lion waited for Horatio to say more. Then when he saw that Horatio was finished, he was flabbergasted. Is that all? he asked Horatio. All? All? protested Horatio. Can you speak it? No, you can't. None of you can. So that makes me cleverer than all of you. So he suddenly stopped and Horatio started shaking for King Lion was slowly turning purple with rage. His whole body was drawing up to its full height. Cleverer? Why, you, you upstart, how dare you? Why, with one swipe of my paw, I could send you to the moon? 
Then what good would your human language do you there, eh? Tell me that, eh? He lifted his huge paw and pointed. Go, go, he said. Go before I knock you back to where you came from. Go. Horatio went, tail between his legs. He felt that perhaps it wasn't quite the right time to claim his throne. In fact, he did not stop running until the sound of the lion's roars could not be heard. It was many hours later when Horatio stopped running. He was very tired and just could not go on. So when he saw a stream, he thankfully lay down and drank deeply from the spring water. Then he crept under a rock by the edge of the water and fell fast asleep. He was exceedingly tired. When Horatio awoke, he saw that the stream lay at the foot of some big mountains. Here the jungle was not so dense, and all down the side of the mountain were rocks, like steps all the way up. Horatio thought he might climb to find out where he was. Hours later, exhausted, he reached a ledge, nearly at the top, and here Horatio spied a cave, still some way above him. I'll make my home there, thought Horatio. This will probably be safe from lions. He was very sad. His situation wasn't good. All the animals had rejected him, and he felt so full of misery, he would have made a good king. He would have been wise and fair. He sighed. He didn't know what a king did when he wasn't wanted as a king. There was a soft tug on his arm. Thinking it was the lion that had caught up with him, he jumped in fright, and turning round to meet his doom, he saw a small golden monkey standing by his side. The monkey was looking at him with astonishment and wonder. My goodness, said Horatio, how beautiful you are. Then he was amazed, for on hearing his words, the monkey started crying. Why, said Horatio, what is the matter? I said you were beautiful. I didn't say you were ugly. With that, the monkey cried all the more. Horatio was bewildered. You see, that's the trouble, wailed the monkey. It's because we are so beautiful that we are hunted so. Hunted? asked Horatio, horrified anyone could harm such a beautiful creature. Yes, we are all nearly finished now. There is only a few of us left. It's our fur. We are hunted for our golden fur. We don't know what to do. Won't you help us? The monkey wailed on and on. Puddles of tears were pooling at his feet. This won't do, Goldie. He decided to call him Goldie because he was certain Goldie would become his new best friend. We must think of something to save you all. Perhaps. He got no further, for from behind the rocks there came such screaming and crying. They're coming! They're here! The hunters are coming! Hurry, everybody! Fly! A voice shouted out. Out of the spaces behind the rocks came the rest of the golden monkey's friends and cousins. Horatio was horrified. How could humans do this? He liked humans, or he used to. Quickly he looked about him. Then he remembered the cave he'd chosen for his home. Not stopping to think, he yelled to Goldie to round up all his friends and to follow him. In their blind panic they did as they were told, and Horatio led them further up the mountainside. The monkeys were faster than Horatio and his new friend, and his new friend Goldie carried him as he pointed the way. Behind them, the hunters, seeing what had happened, gave chase. Up and up they went, until at last the cave was reached. Telling all the monkeys to go as far back into the cave as they could, Horatio told them that he could speak the human language, 
so he would creep out and hide to find out what the humans were going to do. Goldie kept watch by the entrance while Horatio wriggled down to the path that the human people would take to reach the cave. He got as close as he could and listened hard. The hunters openly discussed how they would catch the stupid monkeys and how much they would make for each skin. Horatio was horrified. He had to save the monkeys. When Horatio returned, he was greeted by the news that they had found another way out of the cave. It led up to the top of the mountain, and the younger ones were eager to start at once. Horatio stopped them. His heart was heavy with sorrow. He had sad news to tell. In silence, the monkeys heard how Horatio had listened to the humans laughing about the way the monkeys had gone into the cave. They knew about the other tunnel that led up to the top, so they were going to blast the entrance this end, then wait the other end with nets. The monkeys were frightened and furious. Some even accused Horatio of being in league with the hunters, but Goldie came to his defence and said that it was just bad luck. Anyway, he'd saved them from rushing up through the other tunnel. But what to do? That was the question. It was unthinkable to go up the other tunnel that only led to their doom, so they sat and waited for Horatio to tell them what to do next. There were new noises outside. Then voices were heard and laughter. All the hunters were happy, thinking that they had the monkeys in the nets already. Their laughter sounded so cruel to Horatio. Quick, hurry, said Horatio. Get back down the cave as far as you can go. Then lie flat behind any rock you can find. Hurry, they are going to blast now. Everybody, get down. All rushed down the slope of the back of the cave and lay still with trembling hearts as they waited for the dynamites to explode. There was a huge bang. Rocks went flying through the air. Dust swirled around the cave and everyone was covered. It got into their eyes and their throats, but they never moved. Horatio signalled to everyone to keep as still as, well, mice. At last the rumbles died away. The dust settled. All was still. So still that Horatio could feel their fear. He thought he knew what had happened. The hunters had used too much dynamite in their eagerness to get the monkeys. So now, horrors, both exits were blocked and there wasn't a way out. All was still so still that Horatio could feel the fear and hatred of the monkeys for him. He tried to speak, but his mouth felt dry with shame. He had led the monkeys here to die. In his great eagerness to be king, he had led these poor monkeys to their deaths. He crept further down into the back of the tunnel. Down, down he went, until he could go no further. He huddled against the rock wall and put his head in his hands and wept. Suddenly he felt an arm going around him and a soft voice said, Don't cry, Horatio, don't cry. You did your best. Anyway, I prefer to die here with you than die in the hunter's nets. Hush, 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 don't cry. We're together. So saying, Goldie, for yes, it was Goldie, stood right next to Horatio and held his hand. Horatio stopped crying. If his friend Goldie could be so brave, then he must be also. So, wiping his nose with his big red handkerchief and blowing hard to clear all the tears, he stood up straight. Smiling with all the courage he could muster, he said quietly, Thank you, my friend. Standing close together, waiting for the end, Goldie's teeth started to chatter with cold, so he wrapped his arms around his body, but still he shivered. He asked Horatio, 
Are you, you c- c- cold t- too? Horatio was puzzled. He felt such a draught coming through the rocks that he felt all up and down the wall. Then, giving such a whoop of joy that Goldie nearly jumped out of his skin, he caught hold of Goldie and said, It's a crack, a crack in the wall. Quick, Goldie, help me scrape a hole big enough to squeeze through. I'm going to explore. So the two friends scratched and scraped. Finally, there was room for Horatio to squeeze through. He couldn't believe what he saw on the other side. Popping his head out again, he excitedly told Goldie that on that side of the wall was a tunnel and he was going to see how far it went. Goldie must stay put by the crack to guide him back to the right spot. He must not move at all but wait till Horatio returned. Goldie agreed to do this. So with a quick wave of his hand Horatio disappeared. Goldie called to the others to wait with him. He knew they would need to know that at least there was a chance of escape. The mouse has gone to find a way out. We must wait. The others muttered that they thought the mouse had run away. But Goldie told them, Sniff the air. It's fresh. The mouse will find a way for us. He has to. It must have been about half an hour later that Horatio returned, and Goldie and the rest were very glad to see him. Anxiously they waited to find out what Horatio had found. I found it! I found a way out! Horatio was so excited he could hardly keep his feet on the ground, and he danced up and down with delight. He stood on a piece of rock and waited for the hubbub to die down. When there was silence, he looked at all the faces watching him and waiting to hear about this miracle. My friends, I led you here to this cave and I thought that I was saving your lives. The hunters think that we have all been buried alive in this cave. That is good, my friends, because you will never have to fear the hunters again. All the monkeys started chattering at once, but Horatio held up his hand for silence. Beyond this mountain, down through the tunnel behind this wall, lies a valley. A valley sweet with green grass and trees. There's fresh water and that streams run through a golden sunny valley. It is surrounded by high mountains and this tunnel is the only entrance. So you see, we will be safe. My friends, I will lead you to this valley. But before I do so, I would like to ask you all a question. I want you all to vote on it. The question is this, my friends. Will you let me be your king? The monkeys were silent. Suddenly one of them, a very wise old monkey, stepped forward. If we say no, will you leave us here in this cave to die? Horatio was horrified. Leave you here? Uh, no, no, he said. If you don't choose me as your king, I will still lead you out. But I shall be lost, for it was to be king that fate sent me over the waters. If I am not king, I do not know what to do. The same wise monkey spoke again. Listen, my fellow monkeys, Horatio Mouse is kind and clever. If he had known, not known how to speak the language of the hunters, we would have been dead by now. He is also very unselfish. He would still lead us out of this mountain, even if we did not want him as our king. I, for one, cannot reject him. I vote for, yes, Horatio as our king. One by one the monkeys voted until all had finished. There was a small silence, then an almighty roar. Goldie gave a whoop of joy and then called for three cheers for their new king. All had voted yes, and all looked at Horatio with love and pride. The cheers rang out again and again, but Horatio stopped them at last. 
He told them there was lots of work to do before they reached their new home. Rock had to be moved to make the tunnel big enough for all the monkeys to get through. To work, to work, my people. Then you will see your own golden valley. Oh, how hard they worked. If they got tired, Horatio told them about the lovely valley ahead. So all kept up their courage and worked until at daybreak they finally reached the end of the tunnel. There was a rush to see this wonderful place. Young monkeys jumped up and down with happiness, and everyone stood and gazed at the most beautiful valley in the world. All Horatio had told them was true. Trees were full of fruit, the water in the streams was sweet to drink, and, what was the most important thing of all, they were safe, safe for ever and ever. Tears of joy flowed with cries of joy. Horatio had brought them to a kingdom like no other kingdom in the world. Forevermore, all the monkeys will love and honour their king, Horatio. Time went by and homes were built, also a lovely palace for Horatio, big enough for his friend Goldie to live there too, for every king must have a friend. The wise old monkey he made prime minister, and he in his turn picked other wise monkeys to be in his cabinet so that they could make wise laws. All were happy. All the monkeys agreed that Horatio was the best king that any country could have. As for Horatio, he was just the king he said he would be. He was wise, fair and good. He even started a school so all the young ones could learn of the world he had seen. Life went on. Everyone was happy and settled. Until one day, a small monkey came running to the palace to say that he had seen some dragons. But that's another tale. This story is was written by Joanna North. Joanna North has told these Mouse King stories over the years to many children around the world, and children everywhere always wanted to hear more. She has just turned 93 years old and wanted to share her stories of Horatio with kids on the web. If you tell this story to a child, don't forget who wrote it. She'd love to hear from the children. Contact me, positiveliving at outlook.com, and it will be forwarded to her. She has also written about growing old on TV. So end of Horatio. <clears throat> you want to take a break? Mm-hmm. But at one point it came up and said, did I still want to keep recording? Oh, shoot, did you click on it? Yeah, I did. Oh, good, thanks. Yes, I did. Where's pause? Because it said 30... So you just click on the old model. All right, you're ready to go. A Golden Age. Joanna North ponders on how the old are portrayed on TV. I just don't recognise these people. Some people grow old gracefully, some grow old disgracefully, and some just grow old. I'd like to think that I'm an in-betweener. Ageing is unfortunate but natural, and although we have every right to fight it, in the end I believe that it is a case of mind over matter. Once in my early forties I met up with an acquaintance three years my junior. She sighed and declared, We have to face it, Joanna. We are old now. We have to take things slowly and accept our fate. I fled. 
The loss of my husband in my mid-forties left me somewhat adrift, and once the grief had been faced and stowed away, I squared up to life. Years before, I had made a list of places I would love to see, so I dusted it off and went. If that previously mentioned acquaintance could have seen me then, swinging from boat to boat, taking planes and trains across Europe, she would have fainted. My children also love change and travel, so our lives took on a whole new meaning, and although in the beginning we settled in Africa, by the time I was 60, I had children with their own families in Canada, Africa and England, and loved visiting them all. Now I have passed 80 and I am an old age pensioner. I know my life has been full of experiences, but it's not true that one can sit back and just enjoy the memories. Being old isn't necessarily a barrel of laughs. I find myself living in England, and where the old are slowly but surely being vilified. They are always depicted as senile on the TV, and no one seems to value what they have been or what they may have to say. We are all good for a laugh, and this spills over into the street, where the old have become targets for criminals, violent attacks, and even rape is shockingly common. Well... I would like to stress that I am alive and the brain is still functioning. I still like to think I have taste and an appreciation of culture and the simple things of life, such as my flower garden. The soaps on TV almost show people of my age as stupid, unreasonable, difficult and oblivious to their surroundings. I hasten to say that I know a lot of people my age and not one of them is like this. And although many are less agile than they would like to be, they are most certainly mentally alert and good fun to know. But does English TV shows reality? Well, if EastEnders is reality, I just don't recognise these people as natural or decent or real. The hatred they all feel for each other may make for good ratings, but if I had grown up in a society as fearful and desperate as these soaps, I very much doubt I would have reached old age. Where's the laughter or joy in their TV lives? Is this what dumbing down means, to produce a life of unrelenting misery? Incredible, very frank sex scenes and couplings between people with no regard for their husbands or wives or significant others will also signal to younger viewers that a loveless society is okay. We have become a nation of voyeurs. Add to this the endless inane game shows and manufactured pop groups, it almost seems that we are nurturing a world where talent and effort are no longer required. The trouble is, for most of us, TV is our lifeline and a window on the world. But yes, I am one of those people that think that TV, British TV, was funnier 25 years ago. Certainly the repeats of the old shows seems to prove that I do love a good mystery, but even here the TV detectives seem so bogged down in their own misery, police work seems forgotten. I read the TV guide every day and my spirits drop. But luckily, I have good eyesight and comb the library for books every week. And of course, I am addicted to crosswords. But I have to admit that I do envy other cultures where the old still reside with the family and have a value in their day-to-day lives. I love my nieces and nephews, but I so rarely see them as they grow up and make their own lives. I am here. They are far away, abroad, visiting me only once a year, in a crowded, hectic couple of weeks. I can hardly complain, for my daughters and son are all alike me and travelling, seeking adventures, fending off any suggestions of middle age. 
At 81, my heart is giving out, I admit it. But, as like my mind stays sharp, life is tolerable. But what will old age be like for those who are young now? They seem to age so fast, what to grow up so fast and seem so jaded at 30. Medical science will replace worn parts, they say, but as yet there is no substitute for a cynical heart and a wasted life. The Church of England has recently admitted that they have no relevance in modern English lives and role models on television are deeply flawed. Perhaps it is true. Despite living through a terrible war, my generation had the best of it. Time will tell. Joanna North, 2001 Joanna lives in Lincolnshire, still does her crossword every day and can still beat most contestants in Countdown. She has been an actress, housewife, mother and children, author. And you just heard one of her children's stories, Horatio Mouse. Joanna is now 93 and a half and still ticking and still telling stories. Baggy Brown by Mick Inkpen Baggy Brown started out very well indeed. He was made with 999 others just like himself as a special limited edition costing £499.99 each. In his ear was a golden button in the shape of a crown. Do you know why that was? Because Baggy Brown was made to celebrate the first birthday of Her Royal Highness Princess Sofaninininya, firstborn and daughter for the King and Queen of Thingland. Princess Sofaninininya, Sophie for short, also started out well, as you can imagine. To give you some idea, this is just the top of the pile of cuddly toys that arrived for her the very first day she was born. But do you know, not one of them could stop her crying. Week after week, her little howls rang royally throughout the palace. In fact, her cries were so upsetting that the king and queen had to pull their crowns over their ears. At this time, Baggy Brown was not called Baggy Brown at all, but just Number One, which was in the number stamped on the little gold crown in his ear. He was the first of the 1,000 special bears, and the only one, the only one without a price tag. He was priceless, you see, because he was to be presented to Princess Sophie. And because of this, he had a very large not-for-sale label slapped on the end of his nose. Ouch! It was such a shock that Baggy Brown did not line himself up properly when the big grabbler came round. It missed him completely. While all the other bears were grabbled and whizzed away, Number one continued along the conveyor belt and fell straight off at the end. Down he fell, down, down, and back into the very innards of the big red teddy bear machine at Better Bears Limited. He was grubbed and fluffed and plumped and scrodged and frizzled and squidged and pummeled and whooshed and whooshed and whooshed again. And when it had finished with him, the big red teddy bear machine spat him out onto the factory floor where a passing factory worker called Jack trod on him. Now Jack wasn't to know that Baggy Brown was a priceless bear. He certainly didn't look like one. 
So he picked him up and took him home for his young son, Alfie. Alfie loved Baggy Brown from the moment he saw him. He loved his lopsided face and his soft, saggy body. He loved, too, the strange gold button under Baggy Brown's squashed ear, even though he could not make sense of the name on it. Number one, read Alfie slowly. Number one is a silly name for a bear, and he began to think of a proper name. For three days, Alfie carried Baggy Brown everywhere with him. But on the fourth day, he hid him, and I will tell you why. On that day, the television news finished with a story about a missing royal bear. Number one, first in a long line of bears, is missing, said the reporter. He was holding up number two bear. Number one, number one, that's you, Baggy Brown, said Alfie. And that is why, almost as soon as Baggy Brown got his real name, he was being stuffed head first into one of Jack's smelly old Wellington boots. That night, Alfie couldn't sleep. He crept downstairs and rescued Baggy Brown from the stair cupboard. Silently, he opened the front door and stepped out into the cool night. Alfie knew his way through all the narrow alleyways that led down to the banks of the great river. He knew, too, all the watery places where the coal barges slopped against the wharves, and he knew exactly which boat would head off into the city before first light. It was into this that he jumped, curled himself into a ball around Baggy Brown, and fell asleep. Baggy Brown was wide awake as the barge slipped out onto the great river. He was awake as it slid under black bridges and winking stars. He was awake as it sounded its horn, just as it always did when approaching the royal palace to drop off its load of coal for the royal boiler house. But all the while, Alfie slept on. Which is how he was found by the royal stoker. The stoker, who did not have a clue what to do with the grubby little boy and his grubby little bear, summoned a royal footman. This belongs to the princess, said Alfie, holding up Baggy Brown. The stoker and the footman burst into laughter. Laughter. I don't think so, son, said the stoker. Don't be ridiculous, said the footman, and take that disgusting object away. But Alfie refused to budge. It does, he said. It belongs to the princess. So the footman sent for one of the ladies-in-waiting. Lady Jane Farquhar was undaunted by the smell of old welly rising from Baggy Brown, and having five children of her own, she knew exactly when a child was telling the truth. She examined Baggy Brown closely. As she lifted his coal-black ear, there was a bright glint of gold. Aha, she said, and read aloud, number one. His name is Baggy Brown, said Alfie. After a quick clean-up with Lady Jan Farquhar's hanky, Alfie was led through the palace to the royal nursery, where Princess Sophie was howling, as usual. Sophie looked at Alfie. She looked at Baggy Brown. She stopped crying. And for the first time in 53 weeks, the royal palace was quiet. Sadly, Alfie pushed Baggy Brown through the bars of the royal cot and was led away. But at this moment, Sophie started to howl even louder than before. Alfie? whispered Lady Jane. It's not Baggy Brown that Sophie wants. It's you. So that sealed it. Alfie was allowed to keep Baggy Brown, which of course meant that Baggy Brown was allowed to keep Alfie. And what about Sophie? 
Well, the following week, a parcel arrived for Alfie. In it was a silver phone with just one golden button. From that day on, whenever he liked, Alfie could call for the royal barge to take him and his friends up the great river to the royal palace to visit Sophie. This is them in the treehouse that the king had built in the palace garden when Sophie was five and Alfie was nine. And if I had longer to tell you what happened, I would tell you that Sophie loved Alfie and his baggy brown bear for the rest of her life and married him just after her 21st birthday. I would tell you that Alfie's father Jack became the proud owner of Better Bears Limited, but his proudest day was the day he learned that his grandson, future King of Thingland, was to be named after him. I would tell you that on the day His Royal Highness Prince Jack was born, 10,000 bears rolled off the conveyor belt at Better Bears Limited, and I would tell you that none of them was loved as much as Baggy Brown. You see that, just simply click on it. I'll get you going. Cheer up your teddy bear, Emily Brown. Once upon a time, there was a little girl called Emily Brown and an old grey rabbit called Stanley. One drippy, drizzly, wet weekend, Emily Brown and Stanley were just building a camp in the outback of Australia because it was too rainy to go outdoors when there was a blip-plop, blip-plop noise coming from the toy box. "Uh Uh-oh, said Emily Brown to Stanley. I think there could be something wet in there. There certainly was. It was a very wet teddy bear, and she was singing a song to herself in a sad little voice which went something like this. Poor me, poor me, poor little sad little wet little me. I'm a lonely, only bear and I'm feeling very blue. Come and have fun with us in Australia, said Emily Brown. We're bound to find some bears there. Thank you, said the tearful teddy bear. But there are no other teddy bears. I'm the lonely, only one. So Emily Brown and Stanley and the tearful teddy bear went out camping in the outback of Australia. And Emily Brown and Stanley were just as happy as could be, lighting campfires and spotting kangaroos and making friends with emus. And Emily Brown was just thinking, this will cheer up that tearful teddy bear, when there was a flip-flop, flip-flop noise behind her. And it was the tearful teddy bear, not cheered up at all. Poor me, poor me, poor little sad little wet little me. I'm a lonely only bear and I'm feeling very blue. I've got no teddy friends and there's nothing here to do. Oh dear, said Emily Brown, perhaps we should do something else. So Emily Brown and Stanley and the tearful teddy bear went out walking in the big wild woods of Yellowstone Park. And Emily Brown and Stanley had a very happy time, spotting small bears and large bears and black bears and grizzly bears, but absolutely no teddy bears. And Emily Brown was thinking, this is a lot of fun, when there was a blip-blop, blip-blop noise. And it was the tearful teddy bear, gloomier than ever. Poor me, poor me, poor little sad little wet little me. 
I'm a lonely, only bear, and I'm feeling very blue. I've got no teddy friends, and there's nothing here to do. I'm bored, and it's raining, and raining is no fun. Oh dear, said Emily Brown, maybe we should try something different. So Emily Brown and Stanley and the tearful teddy bear packed their paintbrushes and their easels and their most arty-looking overalls and went to paint sunflowers in the south of France. And Emily Brown and Stanley had the most lovely time, splashing swirls of glorious blue and yellow and red all over themselves. And Emily Brown was just thinking, this is the funnest thing ever, when there was a blip-blop, blip-blop noise behind her. And it was the tearful teddy bear, louder and sadder and more drippy than ever. Poor me, poor me, poor little sad little wet little me. I'm a lonely only bear and I'm feeling very blue. I've got no teddy friends and there's nothing here to do. I'm bored and it's raining and raining is no fun. There are no other teddy bears, I'm the lonely only one. And this time her song was so sad and so loud and so miserable that a terrible thing happened. Emily Brown and Stanley began to feel quite sad too. And then the clouds spread and spread until they filled the sky and they got bigger and blacker and drip, 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 the rain came down and it looked like it was going to wash away the sunflowers. This has gone far enough, said Emily Brown. She took out her red umbrella and pointed it up at the sky. Swoosh! With a lovely swooshing noise, up, 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 went Emily Brown's beautiful red umbrella. Wow, whispered Stanley. Up went Emily Brown's umbrella, and leaping out of the sunflowers came one, two, three, four, five, Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve little teddy bears who'd been having a picnic but were all in a hurry to get out of the rain. I'm not the lonely only teddy bear after all, said the tearful teddy bear. We've been here all the time, the teeniest of the teddy bears squeaked gruffly, and we'd really like you to join our picnic, but your song was so sad we'd been hiding. I think, said Emily Brown firmly, that it could be time for you to stop this sad song and start smiling again. Oh, Emily Brown, Emily Brown, wept the tearful teddy bear. You see, that's the real problem. Someone has sewn my mouth on upside down and I'm not sure that I can smile. Why don't you try, said Emily Brown. Think of happy things and see if that works. So the tearful teddy bear screwed up her teddy forehead and tried to smile as hard as she could. She thought of all the other teddy bears wanting to play with her, and ping! The left side of her mouth worked free of the stitches and waved happily in the wind. And then she thought of the delicious picnic and, pong! The right side of her mouth unpicked itself and wriggled upwards into a wibbly-wobbly smile. And a funny thing happened. When the tearful teddy bear smiled, the clouds got lighter and lighter, and the sun came out again, and as the very last raindrop dropped, plop, onto the cheerful, tearful teddy bear's head, all the little teddy bears sat down for a picnic in the sunflowers. But Emily Brown and Stanley went outside to play in the rain, and they got very, very wet.
Cheer Up Your Teddy Bear, Emily Brown, was by Cressida Cowell and Neil Layton. It's on pause now, so... Was it on pause? No, it's I... working. Oh. So you follow the dial up there. Okay, there you go. The King's Fountain by Lloyd Alexander, illustrated by Ezra Jack Keats. A king once planned to build a magnificent fountain in his palace gardens for the splendour of his kingdom and the glory of his name. The fountain, however, would stop all water from flowing to the city below. A poor man heard of it and said to his wife, Soon our children will cry for water, our animals will sicken, and all of us will die of thirst. His wife answered, A man of highest learning must go to the king, speak to him out of wisdom and show him the folly of his plan. So the poor man went throughout the city to the most learned of scholars and begged him to plead the cause. But the scholar, deep in his own grand thoughts, barely listened. He pondered lofty matters and had no interest in humbler ones. And the scholar lectured him with so many cloudy words that the poor man could make no sense of them at all and went away downcast, saying to himself, Alas, the grandest thought quenches no thirst. Besides, what good is all the learning in the world if there is no one who can understand it? He realised that someone must present the cause clearly and winningly with a golden tongue, so the king would listen and agree. So he went to the marketplace, to the merchants whose words were smooth as pearls and who could string them together endlessly. But when these merchants heard what he wanted, they choked with fear and their glib words failed them. While they gladly offered clever advice, not one dared face the king. The poor man left them and went away dismayed, saying to himself, Alas, the finest words are empty air without the deeds to fill them. Besides, what good is a golden tongue without a brave heart? Then he realised that a man of strength and courage must go and force the king to change his plan. Again he went throughout the city, to the strongest of all brave men, a fearless metalsmith who could knot an iron bar as easily as a shoestring. The metalsmith, eager to stand up against the king, swore that once inside the palace he would smash every window, crack every wall and break the king's throne into firewood. The poor man sadly shook his head, knowing the palace guards would strike down the rash metalsmith before he did even one of those deeds, and the king in his wrath would be all the more determined to build his fountain. So, leaving the metalsmith still pounding his fists, he went away in despair, saying to himself, Alas, the strongest hand is useless without a wise head to guide it. Besides, what good is all the bravery in the world if it serves no purpose? He trudged home, hopeless and heavy-hearted, and told his neighbours and his families that he could find no one to stop the building of the fountain. His daughter spoke then and said, But father, why not go yourself? Confused, unable to answer, the poor man looked at the faces of his wife and family. At last he bowed his head and murmured, I hear my own flesh and blood. Indeed, there is no one else, and I myself must go to the king. The poor man left his home, 
Alone, he slowly climbed the steep and seemingly endless hill. Finally, he reached the king's high palace and for a long while stood outside, fearful and hesitant. When the palace guards roughly seized him and threatened his life for intruding, the poor man trembled in such terror he could hardly speak. Desperately, he blurted out that he had an important message for the king alone. The guards marched him to the throne room where the king angrily demanded why he had come. Knees knocking, teeth chattering, the poor man began to tell as well as he could of the suffering that the fountain would cause. Enough, roared the king. How dare you question what I do? I am the king. The poor man wished for the smallest crumb of the scholar's learning, but he could only stammer, Majesty, thirst is thirst. A poor man's no less than a king's. Then his tongue dried in his mouth, and he wished for even one of the merchant's golden words. The king looked scornfully at him. You come to trouble me for that? I need only to snap my fingers and my swordsman will cut you to pieces and be done with you. The poor man wished for one drop of the metalsmith's bravery. With his own last ounce of courage he answered, You have the power to kill me, but that changes nothing. Your people will still die of thirst. Remember them each time you see your splendid fountain. The king started up ready to call his guards. But he stopped and fell silent for a time, his frowns deep as his thoughts. Then he replied, You are too simple for clever debate with me, but you have a wiser head than a scholar. Your speech is halting, but there is more true eloquence in your words than in the golden tongue of a cunning counsellor. You are too weak to crack a flea, but you have a braver heart than anyone in my kingdom. I will do as you ask. The poor man returned to the city and told the news to all. The scholar wrote a long account of the matter in one of his books and misplaced it. The merchants never stopped ornamenting tales of the poor man's deeds. The metalsmith was so excited he tossed his anvil into the air and broke one of his own windows. The poor man, glad simply to be home with his rejoicing family, was hardly able to believe what he had done. A wise head? A golden tongue? A brave heart, he said to himself. Well, no matter. At least none of us will go thirsty. These stories have been brought to you by Jan Burney, and there are more to come in the future.